They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to the newest patron, Christy. Shout out to Christy. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. Make sure to check it out www.patreon.com slash the one one podcast exclusive episodes over 40 episodes on there now exclusive content only found on there and early access to all of the episodes a week ahead of time so thank you so much christy and welcome to the one-on-one podcast patreon family i appreciate you and i appreciate all of my listeners and thank you for the support hope you enjoy this episode Thank you. I don't know if any of you are uh, turn-of-the-century weird fiction fans, but there's this guy named H.P. Lovecraft, who's a very famous American weird fiction author. And he exposed a, a view which is called cosmicism. And the essence of cosmicism is cosmic indifference. So he, what he was saying is basically, yes, there are these massively intelligent entities out there, but they're not good, they're not evil. They just don't give a shit about you even in the slightest. The same way that you don't care about an ant is the same way they're not going to care about you. And these things that we're summoning into the world now... What the fuck? ...are not demons, they're not evil, but they're more like the Lovecraftian great old ones. There are entities that are not necessarily going to be aligned with what we want. Ladies and gentlemen, today we are pleased to announce the successful merger of Cthulhu and the Keen. Complete dominance and interdimensionary rule is without question. And now, coupled with the legitimacy and instantly recognizable brand name of the Kuhn, we intend to bring change and fight injustice as the all-new Kuhn and Friends. What do I do, Lord? Destroy the child. Corrupt them all. This is their plan, people. These are demons. Just like the Bible says, it's basically an intergalactic invasion into this space through people. I'm telling you, it's what all the ancients said, it's what they warned of, it's what we're dealing with. They're demons. They're freaking interdimensional invaders, okay? I'll just say it, make fun of me all you want on CNN or wherever, but everyone already innately knows this. These people are not freaking humans, okay? Hillary Clinton is a goddamn demon. Welcome to the one-on-one podcast with your host... Juan Ayala. And welcome back to another episode. The first ever episode on HP Lovecraft. And who better to do this episode with than Mr. HP Shovecraft, the one and only. What's up, bro? 
What's going on, man? How you been? I've been good, man. I'm just wearing my HP Lovecraft shirt, and I'm wearing my robe. You might summon some great old ones today, perhaps. Maybe not. Which which, uh, which Lovecraft shirt you got on? Let's see here. Can you see that? It's got HP. Oh, that's fucking dope. Yeah, dude, that's sick. That's absolutely sick. I got a... <clears throat> Got my little Lovecraft tombstone back here. <laughs> and uh, my pretty copy of the Mythos is back here as well. I was going to bring out my uh, my duct tape together copy that I lend out to people. <laughs> that's that's the one that I, I read when I was when I was but a lad. But I got this uh, the one year from a good buddy for Christmas. It's a nice little gold bound edition that I don't read because I have the other one. For the listeners that haven't heard you before on the show, Anton, may you please share your social medias or anything that you want to plug of course of course i uh so i am a horror game streamer on twitch uh that's twitch.tv backslash invader daggett underscore ttv uh you can check me out playing dead by daylight phasmophobia devour uh juan and tom and i had a pretty good pretty good phasmophobia game but he hasn't been back on since hoping that that'll change soon uh also co-host uh strange brew podcast along with tom billy and uh juan over here of course and uh yeah instagram uh hp chefcraft yeah and i'll post that in the show notes yeah i haven't been on bro i've been deep into research into different different subjects right trying to find the answers to the universe if you will it's 42 it's 42 yeah the ultimate answer to the universe is 42 i thought it was 33 no it's 42 okay i'll write that down here in a second (laughs) (laughs) so let's let's talk about the elephant in the room all right, we're going to be talking about H.P. Lovecraft, Howard Phillips Lovecraft today. It yes. wouldn't be a Lovecraft show if you don't immediately start off with being, the man was a deplorable racist. Yes, he was xenophobic. He was a horrible racist, and his cat's name was the name that shall not be named. Oh, you're not going to drop it? I'm not going to drop it. You're not going to drop it? No, I'm not going to drop it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to drop it. You'll be more powerful than Batman, Superman, and the Incredible Hulk put together if you do <laughs> You can you can Google his cat's name and you can shoot me an email and, th- and see what you think about that. Make sure to follow me on social media at the Juan Juan Podcast, www.thehuanjuanpodcast.com, and make sure to check out the Patreon. It's on fucking fire right now. www.patreon.com/slash the Juan Juan Podcast. First make Patreon sure. right here, baby. For the Anton was the first <laughs> subscriber. Yes, yes, and I appreciate all of you. And yeah, let's get to this shit. I wanted to start off with what is your favorite Lovecraft? story oh man so for me it's a three-way tie i i think arguably dunwich horror is his best piece of work uh i I think it's the most complete as a lovecraft story uh i would say but shadow over in's mouth and the color out of space are are right there neck and neck with uh with dunwich in my opinion Uh, i got my for all the the viewers this is the the wood carving of the in's mouth massacre oh that's dope I got that when I was in Salem, but uh, yeah. So like, I don't know, just the whole, I feel like that's, that's really where you get a lot of the good, the good bits of the mythos, you know, you get the fish people, you get the relationship with the deep ones and in's mouth um, with, uh, with Dunwich horror, you get uh, introduced to Shubnugorath and uh, Azathoth as well. Is that, no, Azathoth not in that. Nyarlathotep is uh, briefly in that. Um, and I, I would say Colorado Space has just been been done by so many different people in so many movies that to deny its influences is, is foolish. Yes, yeah, so like my the, f- uh, sorry, go ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. 
Oh, so the uh, for example, the one that most people don't even realize is a uh, a rendition of the color out of space is the Stephen King bit from the movie Creep Show, where the meteor lands and all the the green shit starts growing everywhere. It's mm-hmm. basically just color out of space minus the color. Insert a uh, you know carnivorous peat moss. Yes, yes, and Lovecraft. These entities were not the focal points of his of his work, right? Mm-mm. It was. It was more of like a a they had a background, but they were always there. They weren't like, hey, this thing caused this thing, right? Maybe perhaps in here and there, but they were never like, oh, this is the main thing. It was always like there's a background to it. There's a mythos to it. And they just exist, right? Like in this sort of of right. That's what cosmicism is. It's, it's always been there no matter what. There's not a fucking thing that you can do about it. And that's that. My favorite story of his is the music of eric zahn that's fantastic story it's a student is intrigued by the hauntingly beautiful music coming from the room above his he finds that an eccentric german violinist eric zahn is responsible but that there is a terrible secret behind his music and i encourage the listeners to go and check it out and every single time bro that i that i think about that that the the you know the the way that they describe the music otherworldly cosmic like nothing i had ever heard before this is what comes to mind Eric Zahn is fucking jamming now. He was the OG of the Star Wars Cantina song, bro. And that's. (laughs) 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 Bro, that's what I always think about every time I'm reading that story. I'm like, really? (laughs) Yeah, dude, for some fucking reason. Because that's like an unforgettable, like alien music you know what i mean it's like they're fucking jam it's fucking it's iconic oh my god bro that totally changes the whole tone of the story (laughs) i'm thinking you're gonna put out some haunting like violin just like you know making the weirdest noises that no no (laughs) earthly string should be able to conjure these sounds and you're just like oh brilliant i fucking love it i love it i love it (laughs) so i encourage the people to check that out and that's my favorite Oh man, dude, that would probably drive the dude insane as well. He'd just be like, "What the fuck is this?" It's my fucking jam, dude. So good. He's doing TikTok videos and shit. Eric's on so tired of playing it for people that he's like, "I'll play whatever, and you can listen, but don't ever listen to that song again." What if, what if the secrets of the universe to be able to summon these great old ones is in that song? If you play it note by note, and you're just able to unlock some sort of cosmic secret right the fucking you know fucking hit that shit <laughs> you oh, imagine no. in a rave or some shit bro <laughs> next to me <laughs> space so, time just unfolds itself yeah that's what i'm saying so that, that that's always remind every the first time i was like man what does this remind me i was like oh shit that's right so i wanted to start off with my favorite quote by hp lovecraft and that is being the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And mind you, this is a guy who wrote, some people say 75,000 letters, other people say up to 100,000 letters. He was the most prolific writer of letters for his time, and he has shaped what has become horror, the, the genre of horror. He has inspired a, a ton of people, right? We have The Thing, which is a very Lovecraftian 
aspect we have all these different movies what's that one movie with the girl from twilight the latest one underwater or some shit like that where yeah that's the one that has like a giant cthulhu deity to it uh one of the newer twilight zone episodes the ones directed by jordan peele there is a a sentient cephalopod episode where um joel McHale from community and uh the talk talk soup i mean and other shit like that uh they're all part of this research team in antarctica and there's a bunch of weird shit going down and it turns out it's an octopus that's fully aware of everything and is like displaying above human level consciousness, which of course is very Lovecraftian in and of itself. Uh, a good portion of Stephen King's shit was just ripped off of Lovecraft. Like the mist, the mist is about as Lovecraft as it gets as far as Stephen King goes. But I mean, Lovecraft and Poe are really the two biggest wells from which Gothic, Gothic literature springs, at least in modern, modern standpoints. Then you have like Robert Block. Uh, you have um, who wrote King in yellow. Oh yes, I know what you're talking about, but I yeah, yeah. Um, I can't believe it's Robert up. Chambers. Robert Chambers, I believe, or was Robert Chambers one of Lovecraft's contemporaries? The King in Yellow. Can you pull that up. I want to say it's Robert Chambers. Let me check here. My internet's acting up, of course. So yes, it's by W. Robert W. Chambers. Yes. Yep. Okay, so it was Robert Chambers. Yes, and it's these stories, right, and these things that incite this sort of indifference in within you and i wanted to, uh, today's episode is going to be packed full of a lot of information i'm going to start off with his life first and then i'm going to get into the whole cosmicism we're going to talk about maybe his occult his occultism relationship if that was true or not and then just little hidden nuggets here and there that we can talk about and we know that recently i mentioned something on, on another podcast shout out to kyle from the big dumb podcast and uh, i posted it on twitter or on tiktok and they had a fucking meltdown because of what I had said. And I'll bring that up here in a little bit. So I want to start off with his early life being Howard Phillips Lovecraft. And some speculate, again, up to 75,000 letters during his lifetime. Some say 100,000 plus. Mm -hmm. and, th and there is not much that is n not known of him because he wrote so much within his life. He literally wrote about everything. Some things more than others, but nonetheless wrote extensively. He was born August 20th, 1890 at 9 a.m. in Providence, Rhode Island, right? He says, I am Providence. He, he says that he always comes back there. And a lot it's of on his tombstone. Yeah, it's on his tombstone. It's, and, it's the most pretentious gravestone in all of Providence. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that that really stood out to me was born. born here we go. Yeah, I forgot what the fuck I was going to say. Anyways. But oh, yes. A lot of the th uh, some of the places that he wrote about were based off of Providence. Correct. That's, mm -hmm. that's one of his things. Lovecraft wasn't very well traveled through most of his life. And you write what you know, especially as, you know, as, as prolific of a writer as Lovecraft was. So, of course, he drew most of his inspiration from the surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I mean, most of his that's why most of his stuff takes place in, quote unquote, Lovecraft country, which is just this uh, oh. fictional era area in Massachusetts. The exception of that being, of course, like um, Mountains of Madness, which takes place in Antarctica or I the ones that take place in space, because he was also a. Uh, an enth uh, astronomy enthusiast. He was an amateur uh, astronomer. So, of course, Lovecraft looking to the heavens and looking to the ocean, which is both things that are you know directly in his line of sight, are going to give him his, his biggest source of inspiration. And maybe when he went to school, because he never graduated, when he figured out that he was shitty as fuck in math, he found out he couldn't, right? There was more yeah. math in astronomy than anything. So he probably, that was, he was a very sensitive person. And we'll get to that. So his father, his mother, Sarah Susan Lovecraft, his father, Winfield Scott Lovecraft. His father was a traveling salesman for a silversmithing company. And when mm -hmm. Lovecraft was three, his father suffered a nervous breakdown in a hotel room. 
Yes. He was brought back to Butler Hospital where he remained for five years before dying in 1898. And Lovecraft was told that his dad was paralyzed, comatose, that he was all fucked up. But there's evidence that suggests otherwise. His father was to a set of, he died of a form of neurosyphilis. Okay. And after his dad died, he would be raised by his mother, his two aunts, and his grandfather, a successful at the time businessman, Whipple Van Buren Phillips. And, and suppose, I think you can trace back their lineage like way, way back, right? Yeah, they're proper Plymouth people. They are they are as waspy as it gets. Yeah, so they 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 were a, like a, a you know a successful family until again at the age of two he was reciting poetry, reading at the age of three, and writing by the age of six or seven. So he was a bright kid, right? He was he was a genius, no? Um, I would say li- I don't know that I would call him a literary genius because I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of people that are very critical of his writing style. Um, yeah. you know, the overused Very adjectives. Convoluted. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's it's a, what is baroque, right? Like a different Yes, yes. But he had an extraordinarily large vocabulary, so it kind of that's why it works, I think. Because a lot of people try and write like Lovecraft, being like the slimy crawling mysterious thing, and it's like, but they're only using words like slimy and crawling and mysterious, and it's just like, dude, you're an not Eldritch. That's the an Eldritch, yes, yeah, all the buzzwords in Lovecraft. <laughs> tentacle he, it's like dude, yeah so. tentacle like fucking tentacle porn he read arabian like nights tentacle at, the bowl. Age, <laughs> at the age of five where depending which account to read was either told about the name abdul al-hazred or came up with it in a dream right this being a fictional character behind the authoring of the mystical necronomicon ne- yeah. necronomicon and unfortunately we're not going to be really covering the necronomicon today because it is an extensive episode and we'll do that for later on and his earliest work, which can be traced back to 1896, was The Noble Eavesdropper. His interest in the weird was fueled by his grandfather in his library, who entertained Lovecraft with off-the-cuff weird tales in the gothic mode. So he started off by writing these journals, I believe it was, right? Mm-hmm. The, the very first things he started writing, these journals, and then obviously amateur journalism really helped him come through, become what he became because he was depressed and all this shit and his grandfather was one who told him these ghost stories about different uh you know all these weird tales of paranormal and all this shit and he had a library in his house and lovecraft was in there reading all this shit as a kid so again that could be a potential influence on what became of the i don't know if you want to call him the great lovecraft but somebody who undoubtedly influenced literature and modern and pop culture in, in a way that that you know even I want to say that even who was it that wrote uh, William Shakespeare almost I, I can put him up there and his influence with 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 literature. So with modern horror I would say absolutely. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Um, A lot of the things that people don't realize even in video games, pop culture, music, every art, everything, a lot of things that you don't know are Lovecraftian in nature. Well, the, the just the phrase itself Lovecraftian has become just, you know, synonymous with with cosmic weird. It's, it's often used to describe anything that's cosmic weird. Mm-hmm. Um, it's its mm-hmm. own fucking subcategory of horror movies. Yeah. So Lovecraft was a lonely and sickly boy. He suffered from frequent illness, and many of them apparently psychological. He never really went to school. It was very spotty, and most of his learning was done via independent reading. He did manage to go to high school for a brief bit, and he found some relief in that, but he obviously had uh, some sort of mental breakdown, quote-unquote, and never graduated. By 1906 and on, he was already writing columns for various papers. In 1904, his grandfather died, and due to various bad investments, he left the Lovecraft family in financial ruin. They so were one of the... That... Go ahead. 
one of the biggest things with that is that they had uh, they owned a dam that really? uh, had apparently exploded. Yeah, this was just recently in uh, one of the letters uh, that I'd recently been been reading about Lovecraft, which was uh, "Suicide Can Wait," because once his grandfather died, that was the first time, and, mm-hmm. and by his own admission, really the only time that he seriously considered killing himself. Um, but they were saying that uh, the family dam had exploded and left them, in Lovecraft's words, relatively poor. But we're talking about a man who eventually, you know, died. Lovecraft himself died of, you know, intestinal cancer because of his fucking atrocious diet because he was insanely frugal because he was poor. But he didn't want to drop the airs of uh, being a Providence name. I don't want to say socialite because Lovecraft wasn't really a social person outside of the letters and corresponding with other people that, you know, were, were in the same literary uh, category as Lovecraft himself. But the heirs, yeah. I think the image was more important to him than anything. So Lovecraft and his mother were forced to move out, right? Due to this from their lavish home. It was like Victorian or some shit like that. And yes. it was into a more cramped quarters some blocks away. It was only a few blocks away. And this house is still standing, I believe. And this devastated Lovecraft so much that he even contemplated suicide, how you mentioned. He would take these long bike rides and look at the river and, and, and think about jumping in and just dying. Yep. And Talk 19- about drowning quite yeah, a lot. Drowning. Yeah. Right, this has to do with with Cthulhu, right? Where or Cthulhu, or however the fuck you want to pronounce. It. I mean, it's supposed to be unpronounceable by human yeah. tongues, so yeah. You know. So, in 1908, before graduating, he suffered a mental breakdown, which made him leave school without a diploma. From 1908 to 1913, Lovecraft was a virtual hermit. He was said he was said to walk around with, you know, the typical. Uh, it reminds me of the vampire kiss when he's like walking around like all secretive and shit with his with his with his collar folded up. He was like this. He yep. wouldn't look people in the eye. He would only come out at night. He was a virtual fucking hermit. This guy was a weirdo. This guy was a weirdo. He said hundred percent would make eye contact with people. Would look straight ahead and just be in his own little world. Maybe he was on the spectrum. I think Nikola Tesla is always on the spectrum. Oh, I think they are both. Well, f- and and Lovecraft and Tesla were both notoriously asexual. Which we can get into the argument was Lovecraft gay? I don't fucking think so. I think Lovecraft was the definition of someone who is asexual. He was a nerd. He was an uber nerd. I would yeah. I would say nerd doesn't even describe it because nerds love pussy. So. <laughs> Yeah, he was he was a weird eccentric guy. He was he was just weird. But and, and during this time, he was thrown into an unhealthy relationship with his mother, as we know. She would. I, I don't know that we we could say it was this time that it started. I would say from the get go, he had a horribly unhealthy relationship with his mother. She would call him ugly. She would say that he was grotesque to the point where he believed it. She would bend down as to not dislocate his arm when walking next to him. Mm-hmm. She was very overprotective. It was a love hate relationship. And it reminded me of the Bates Motel. Have you seen that? Yeah, series? oh, very Norman Batesy. Yeah, which I think even honestly, uh, that uh, who was it that wrote? It wasn't William Peter Blatley. That was the Exorcist. That wrote Bates Fuck. Motel. Psycho. Who wrote Psycho? The original. Uh, the movie, the one with the the guy from uh, Batman, or was it Batman? Psycho, the movie. The original movie, not the um, 1960 Alfred yes, Hitchcock. The Hitchcock, but I can't remember who wrote the book. That Psycho was inspired by. Because the book was written about Ed Gein. Hang on, who wrote Psycho? Robert Block. Robert Block. Okay, so it was Robert Block. Uh, I believe Robert Block was actually one of Lovecraft's contemporaries, so it's entirely possible that that may have been inspired uh, in some way, at least the mother-son relationship. But the thing that's crazy about her calling him ugly is that, you know, I've heard it speculated that it's because he reminded her of his father. But if you look at a picture of Howard next to his mother, 
they are the fucking spitting image of one another. So I think it's it's much more from just a sense of deep self-loathing that she yeah. had uh, yeah. and with her own personal faults. Another thing with his mother is she also, uh, spoiler alert, ends up in the insane asylum. The same one that her father that claimed his father was that related. Did she contract syphilis, do you think, from him? Because that's highly speculative. And I think maybe just the Lovecraft name is what managed to keep that information from from the public. I think uh, so. But, yeah, I think so. I think I told you that. I think that she did uh, contract it from her. Because what are the chances, right? And, but she ultimately died from a botch. What was it? Gallbladder uh, operation mm -hmm. that she that she died from. She didn't die from like neurosyphilis right. like her dad. But it but it's weird that she ended up in the same asylum or hospital or whatever it was. Well, suffering a very similar mental breakdown as well. Yes. 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 And so later on, Lovecraft would become inspired by amateur journalism where he would go on to publish in various pulp magazines of the day. And the reason that they called them pulp was because they were very, very low quality, right? The cheapest that they could make them at the time. And they were pretty paper. much pulp paper. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It was just shitty magazines. You and threw it away when you were done with it. That's why uh, weird fiction and uh, weird tales are so highly sought after by collectors now, because oh. it's just something that they were like, nah, fuck this. We're done reading it. Throw it away. Because nobody knew who Lovecraft was. He wasn't prolific until well after he had died. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, this entire experience was said to have saved Lovecraft from a life of unproductive reclusiveness. He himself once said in 1914 when the kindly hand of amateur amateurdom was first extended to me, I was close to the state of vegetation as any animal well can be. With the advent of the United I. Yeah, the advent, I can't read my fucking handwriting. With the advent of the United, I obtained a renewal to live, a renewed sense of existence as other than a superfluous weight, and I f and found a sphere in which I could feel that my efforts were not wholly futile. For the first time, I could imagine that my clumsy graspings or gropings after art where a little more than faint cries lost in the unlistening world. See how he fucking writes like all this. It is seething with self-loathing. All I can't of it read my reeks. handwriting and I can't read his shit. <laughs> <laughs> all, all of it reeks of, of a self-loathing, depressed teenager. One yeah, who feels emo. extraordinarily isolated from everyone. And a lot of that, you know, is probably due to his just wildly xenophobic views. And not just of, of racial standpoints, but he viewed anyone who was not of good stock in a disparaging way. So it didn't matter if you, I mean, obviously the brunt of it went towards, you know, immigrants and uh, African-Americans and things along those lines, but he despised poor Appalachian white folk. He despised mixed people. He despised everyone that wasn't Lovecraft basically. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that goes in, that, that goes hand in hand with a lot of psych, uh, psychop psychopathy as well, simply because, you know, most of those people have this, um, egocentric view of the universe which with lovecraft it was almost a a yin and yang where it was like he would go through bouts where he would be just you know ah i have the best worldview this is the only worldview that matters to his uh cosmicism and his cosmic nihilism which is basically just none of this fucking matters absolutely none of this fucking matters so yeah. like and if none of it matters then why are you so hung up about race mm -hmm. yeah hashtag no lives matter right so <laughs> He kept a steady flow until 1922 with various different works and publications. And at this time, it was when he had various pen pals and these pen pals that he would introduce ideas to them and vice versa. And the Cthulhu mythos was born from these relationships that he had with all these other 
authors and writers and different he would introduce he would introduce them to different ideas he would try different ideas on them to see what they thought about it and he was very he was very uh he would write extensively to these people he was very generous with his time right he would write just fucking novels to these people and i don't know where the fuck he would find the time 74 well that's all he fucking did lovecraft never held a goddamn job a day in his life he refused to he believed it was beneath him um it was one of the reasons why he got so bent out of shape when they lost the mansion. And he used to ride past it constantly. I believe it was turned into either doctor's office or a lawyer's office. And he would lament over that constantly. Um, but yeah, so for a, uh, a point of reference for the listeners out there with uh, there's a podcast by the HP Lovecraft historical society called uh, voluminous. And that's only his letters. It's, it's oh. just them reading his letters and not all of them either. Uh, that that one that I was talking about the uh, the suicide one is I believe it's like a three or four part episode. Uh, some of Lovecraft's letters were you know seventy four pages plus wow. that he would write to people. It, we're not talking about a hey, it's Howard. How's it going? <laughs> I walked on the coast the other day and saw a starfish. Gave me an idea for an elder creature. Well, <laughs> it's been swell. Gotta go. Your pal Lovecraft. It was this fucking extensive this is my opinion on this and i think that this is superfluous and this is blah, 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 blah. and just you know 400 words that you've never fucking heard of that he wrote because he's you know he's he's howard phillips lovecraft he's he's, he's the greatest author in his own mind yes and he became to be known as one of the greatest and most prolific letter writers of the century mm -hmm. and there's something that people refer to as the lovecraft curse because again his mother would suffer a mental breakdown to where she would put be put in again the butler hospital and like lovecraft's father his mother would never emerge again and died in 1921 however she died from a botched gallbladder operation now there's a couple of things that I that I ran across that that I stumbled across in this research of this episode and and, and the one being that the the idea that his mother was very superstitious in her, you know, coming up and all this stuff and that she would dress her in, Celt in Celtic culture. It was believed that boys were more susceptible to being kidnapped by fairies. And yep. I don't know if that's got this has to do with Lovecraft's his dreams that he described of, of the gauntly things. Right. It was it, the night gaunts, the night gaunts where he would be taken almost in a abduction, alien gray kind of way. Right. And, and there, it was said that his mother again, contributing to his fucked up childhood, yeah. dressed him up as a girl and even gave him a girl name. And there are these pictures that look, it's Lovecraft's mother with a mm -hmm. little girl. Yep. And it's it's said to be Lovecraft. I don't know how true that is. But... It is no, it's true, uh, at least from what we can gather, because it was common practice during the Victorian and the Georgian ages um, because it was, it was just leftover Celtic and Welsh mythology, the mythology of the changeling coming in and taking your trial. And that was how they dealt with things like, you know, mental retardation, physical deformities and other things along those lines is the child isn't my child. It was someone came in in the middle of the night and took it. It's, it's, it's a changeling. <laughs> but Oscar Wilde's mother did the same thing. There's images of Oscar Wilde dressed up as a girl. Yeah. Yeah. But well, again, it was, it was to be gay. so yeah, they, they were, they were superstitious right back then. And I stumbled across this, and this was the thing that really set the fandom off after me on on TikTok. They were like, "When you oh. referred to Cthulhu as a jinn, and that dude lost his shit, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about." He, I'm like, completely hey, missed what you were trying to say. Listen, like what I meant to say was not that Cthulhu is a jinn, but maybe that the jinn was Cthulhu, right? Because listen, listen, just hear me the fuck out, please, for one second. We know that Lovecraft had vivid nightmares, right? And they were his source of inspiration. 
he was also said to have collected oriental pottery and little figurines now as well as arabic yes 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 and he was obsessed with arabian nights and mm-hmm. abdul al hazred was one of his personas that came to him in a dream or whatever now we know that the famous jinn is the genie in the bottle okay what if you know i propose and this is not my idea this is something that i stumbled across in research what if the the again the jinn was cthulhu and it was something that he had collected and it attached himself to this person being Lovecraft. And through that, he was able to convey and bring into existence on a mental level this crazy hierarchy of these great old ones and all these gods and goddesses that exist on the outside of the fabric of reality that we're not able to comprehend in any way, shape or form. And that was all I said, and people just fucking went crazy, bro. I was like, holy shit. That was like 50-plus comments on it, and it didn't get that many views. It probably got like 5,000 views, 4,000 views, whatever, but still people were like, oh, you fucking retard. I'm like, bro, I'm not, I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not <laughs> I'm just, a, just a random podcaster that says shit, you know what I mean? You're just voicing an idea that's in your head. And that was a fun, that was a very fun thread to be a part of. So thank you. <laughs> I remember when I got the text and you're like, I'm fighting for my life out here. I need answers. I'm like, all right, fine. I'm like, I'm like, I, I understood exactly what you were talking about. I was like, no, 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 I get that. Like maybe uh, one of the, you know, the, the, uh, not, not icons, but one of the, the items that Lovecraft acquired or a book or something was possessed by the spirit of this djinn who instilled, you know, or, or, or fed into Lovecraft's already burgeoning imagination mm-hmm. that started to, you know, flesh out the mythos a little bit and gave him names of things yeah. or just changed names of things that already existed. Uh, because while sidebar on the Lovecraft possibly being an occultist thing, which I I really don't think he was. I think if he actually was, we would have a lot more of a clue Mm -hmm. to it. Cause I know that I've heard people say, you know, he was worried that he'd end up in the same sanitarium as his parents. It's like, I don't, I don't think that's enough to stop Lovecraft from expressing it. He would have written it a little more in his fiction. I mean, it's there for sure, but he doesn't go into the, the nitty gritty aspects of, of ritual magic. He just more goes into the, you know, these, these jungle people are, are dancing and doing drums. So most of that was from like the voodoo, uh, you know, lore of the day um, and, and his own, his own personal prejudices. But I think that you can definitely make the argument that Lovecraft is the father of a neo paganism, uh, almost exclusive to America, because there are groups that worship and attempt to summon (laughs) old ones constantly. Yeah. They're using a fucking Necronomicon that was written by a douchebag in the 70s. But, you know, I mean, hey, yeah, whatever floats yeah. your cracker, man. So, and we'll get into that here in a second. Uh, during his an amateur journalism convention in Boston in 1921, he would meet his first and only wife, right? Sonia Haft Green. And I tried looking into her because... Jewish. And she was a Russian Jew, seven years his senior. Bingo. And I tried looking into some, con- some occult connections that sh- she supposedly had, but I wasn't able to find anything. And they would eventually get a divorce in 1929. But during and after these years, he would write some of his most notable works. The Call mm-hmm. of Cthulhu, 1926. At the Mountains of Madness, 1931. Mm-hmm. The Shadow Out of Time, 1934-1935. And during the last two or three years of his life were filled with hardships, right? He was he was very poor. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he was a ghostwriter for a long time. And he was just getting a little bit of money here and there. And eventually he would check into Brown Memorial Hospital in 1937, where he would die five days later. He died penniless without having 
actually published a full book or a novel. Like he never actually published it. It was just a bunch of his things. And mm-hmm. Lovecraft's work would go on to be published in paper back and translated into dozens of languages through the Arkham Horror, which were Arkham his pen- or, or, I'm sorry, Arkham House, which uh, August August Dur- uh, Derlin and Donald Wandry, right? I said that right. And they would go on to publish all his works, right? And thanks to them, we know once they translated into French, that was a real big thing, right? The French love mm-hmm. the shit. And the French just have Im- impeccable taste for yeah, art. Yeah. They really do. Yeah. I mean, but look at the people, right? Look at the culture and look at the, 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 the you know, everything over there, right? And, yeah. and so, and we know from this, a cultural movement was sparked and his influence can be seen all throughout pop culture and more. And that, that will, I, I want to get into, Lovecraft's well, Dar- impact. Derelith is the one that coined the term Cthulhu mythos. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's accredited with basically being the person that put it all together. Before that, it was just a collection of deities in Lovecraft's work that, you know, they they, they appear throughout multiples, but like the uh, most prolific of them, Cthulhu himself or herself, depending on which school you, uh, you know, subscribe to, is mentioned in like one fucking book or one story. <laughs> but it's the one that everyone knows because I think Call of Cthulhu just rolls off the tongue. Yes, yes. And I want to get into Lovecraft's impact, right? And maybe the Cthulhu mythos now. And you can say Lovecraft created his own genre. He presents man's indifference to his celestial counterpart like no one else had before uh, him had. Lovecraft's great old ones and a sort of neo-pagan mythos presented the idea that things were much older than mankind and much older than Earth. And they're gazing upon us, right? And they're all—they've always been there at this, the very edge of the fabric of existence. And they will only mm-hmm. come in when they want to be seen, right? And when they come in, you won't even know that they're fucking here. And uh, this is from the Call of Cthulhu. These old ones were gone now, hidden in distant wastes and dark places all over the world, until the time when the great priest Cthulhu, from his dark house in the might, mighty city of Rilhiach, under the waters, should rise and bring the earth again beneath his sway. And that was from the Call of Cthulhu. And the idea that these otherworldly creatures or entities that have been banished and are to return and take back what was theirs, right? This idea that there's these things that are that we can't comprehend even through language, right? Or even through thought, right? The only thing that they have control over is through our emotions, right? The, mm-hmm. And they invoke the emotion of fear, which is, again, the oldest and strongest kind of emotion. Fear and madness. Fear and madness and the great old ones are the universe or the cosmos. They are an uncontrollable force such as the Logos was for the Stoics. Mm-hmm. And I want to get in. I want to read a couple quotes here if you want to interrupt me, Anton, and say something. Yeah, the uh, so the great old ones and, and all of the deities within Lovecraft's mythos aren't even subject to the laws of tangible reality. For example, uh, Cthulhu. Dead Cthulhu lies dreaming. They reference them as dead, but they're not. They're just simply waiting for the time when the stars are right. And they humans can have a mild impact on them is that there are, you know, miscellaneous cults that exist to to attempt to summon these beings. But once they're awakened, we are inconsequential to them. We are we are ants on a hill and they will go about their business and do their, you know, do do their deeds as, as they see fit. Regardless for for mankind, it's not as though these things can even really be classified as evil. The only one that I would say could really be classified as evil is Nyarlathotep, which is weird because they're also the only one that could really be classified as having helped out humanity in any facet. But Nyarlathotep really just seems to love the chaos. 
and just seems to love fucking with people. And the only good they've ever done for people is is whatever serves their agenda at the time. Yeah, I think of Neolithotep as like an Enki or Enlil, right, of the Sumerian myths, yeah. where it's like this trickster god, right? You have Enlil that he wanted, he loved the humans, and then you have Enki that wanted to end all of them, right? Or I might have that mixed up because again, I, I there's a lot just of just a combination of both of them, and and yeah. Neolithotep is simply an extension of Azathoth. Azathoth, the the mindless, you know dreaming idiot god the one whose incessant piping at the center of the universe is what makes all of creation so essentially think of it like lovecraft lovecraft was also a lucid dreamer uh you know as, as being so prolific of a dreamer and getting his inspiration from there um like when we go into uh the dream quest of unknown kadath the the character of randolph carter was lovecraft's avatar in his own works mm -hmm. uh, I, I believe to an extent nyarlathotep was also lovecraft's avatar which existed within the avatar already of Azathoth because Lovecraft viewed himself as the, the dreamer of this world because he's dreaming of his entire mythos and creating it. And then if Lovecraft wakes up from these dreams, they're gone. Yes. Yes. And also did you remember about the correlation between him and Houdini? Houdini also had some well, sort of, of did ghost writing for Houdini under the pyramids or under, uh, under yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. was a, was a Houdini story. Yeah, where like the the guy kidnaps him and shows him all this fucking crazy stuff. It's basically yeah, the story of a a magician, a stage magician like Houdini, who goes to the Middle East and performs all these tricks, pisses off a whole bunch of you know Middle Eastern magic magicians, and they're like, all right, we'll fucking see how good you are, and they tie him up and drop him in a pyramid. Yeah, and he also had he also had taken right and and made up this also this other persona, which I don't have the name right offhand, but it also was almost like Abdul Ahazred, which is the, the mad Arab. Right. He also had some persona that he adopted supposedly that came to him in his dreams. Right. So again, this idea that not that Cthulhu was a jinn, but that the jinn was Cthulhu and he visited various people all throughout history in order to invoke these thoughts in people and create this mythos that now exists forever. Right now, it, this will forever be a thing now. For sure. The whole aspect of him being an occultist or not, there are a lot of occult aspects to his work, right? a lot of the practices in his work. He did write that he was not an occultist and that he didn't have the time or money staunch for Staunch atheist. Yeah. In, in, but, his, in his own writings, he was a staunch atheist. But Anton, what do you think it is that he was able to recall all these things? He was, he, there was, there's an aspect of like Sufism and obviously ancient religion in his, all his writings, all these, these gods that he talks about there, there can be, there can yeah. be some connections made to real life religious for sure. Figures. And I, I think that uh, stems from his grandfather's library. Nice. Lovecraft was fascinated with the Middle East. Lovecraft was fascinated with the Orient. Those are the places from which these myths come. You know, the Middle East is the cradle of civilization. Allegedly. Yeah. I know that there's a lot of talk about yeah. things uh, being found in South America now that are kind of just like, okay, we have no fucking idea, but you know, I think that the the logical and practical answer to that and the non-esoteric answer to that is it most likely came from his grandfather's library. His grandfather seemed like the kind of man that while a well put together, you know, uh, northern, nor northeastern wasp, he also seemed to entertain, you know, by telling Lovecraft these ghost stories and going more into the metaphysical and stuff. He seemed to have more of like, yeah, a supernatural or even just a cheery nature about him. You know, like obviously there's a reason Lovecraft looked up to this man. Uh, the the lack of a of a present father figure, I'm sure, is is a massive part of it. But I, I would say that I think that a lot of uh, a lot of Lovecraft's information and inspiration comes from the, what he read 
as a child because that was his escape. That's where he lived. He lived in books. He lived in literature. There's a reason the man's vocabulary was as you know profound as it was. Yes, and I want to get into the Cthulhu mythos and talk about that a little bit and about the 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 cosmicism aspect and the horror aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And I want to start off with a couple of quotes here. The first being by Nikola Tesla. And I believe it's got to do with a lot of what we're talking about. He says here, my brain is only a receiver in the universe. There is a core from which we obtain knowledge, strength, and inspiration. I have not penetrated into the secrets of the core, but I know that it exists. That's Nikola Tesla. We have Albert Einstein. Imagination is more important than knowledge for knowledge is limited to all we know now and understand while imagination embraces the entire world and all that ever will be to know that ever will be to know and understand. And we have here Frederick Nietzsche, Nietzsche, which I'm doing an episode on him soon. Nice. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. Right? I think for the Nietzsche quote, uh, the Nietzsche quote, I think that that it's more a criticism on the nature of mankind versus it yes. being some sort of cosmic actual thing. Whereas, you know, uh, the whole don't, don't become, to use a, a horrible thing, don't become so anti-fascist that you yourself become a fascist. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and, and the same thing with the abyss. Like if you, if you gaze long enough into the dark aspects of your soul, you're going to see shit you don't want to see. And if yes. you blink and meaning, you know, if you falter in that, you run the risk of being consumed by them. Yeah. It's, it's like the, what I, what I put here in the, the forbidden knowledge aspect of all his writing where these people are looking into things that they shouldn't be looking at and they either are driven insane or ultimately die. And that's the overwhelming theme in Lovecraft is, you know, don't don't ask questions that you are not prepared to have the answers to. Yes. And we have here a line from the call of Cthulhu, something that resonated with me, right? Because it was brought up in my research and he's talking about the grotesque statuette, right? Who goes, a form only a diseased fancy could conceive. And they say that he talked about, again, this is something that I cover too, where certain reli- certain genealogy and certain people are able and more susceptible to to the paranormal, right? You have the skinwalker, the wendigo, mm-hmm. the, the chupacabra, if you will, right? This paranormal aspect of it. And a form only a disease fancy. Is he talking about people with schizophrenia that they say that their brains are wired differently and they're able to perceive mm-hmm. other things outside of our realm of reality, right? That, that, that stood out to me. And I have here, in The Outsider, Lovecraft tells the story of a man who lives in solitude in a decrepit dark castle and can't remember when or if he has ever seen a living person. He decided to climb the tower into the unknown outer sky since it was a better, it, it was better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever seeing the light of day. He enters a window and is met with the people whose faces is met with people whose face faces were hideously distorted with fear, fleeing yes. with horrible screams. The man trembles at the thought of what, what might be lurking near him unseen. He then he then sees a reflection and he says. I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within the great gilded frame, stretched out my fingers and touched a cold, unyielding surface of polished glass. Right. And that was like the part where they go, oh, he's the fucking monster. Yeah, you know, right? like, Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it was me. Oh, no. 
what the fuck? <laughs> uh, that uh, that again, just a, a very staunch reflection of Lovecraft's self-loathing. I think that that character, so much, so many characters in Lovecraft's mythos are him, yes. or at least aspects of his personality. I think that one was probably written during a depressive period of Lovecraft, where he's like, "I'll never." Maybe you know, was that pre-divorce to Sonia, or was that post-divorce to Sonia that The Outsider was written? Let me see here. I'm gonna look it up real quick. I'm not 100% sure. It was in Lovecraft. So it was written in between March and August of 1921. So it was a they no they got divorced in 1929. Was it that what it said? Mm-hmm. I believe so. Yes. Maybe it had to do with his mom, right? Calling him ugly and all this stuff, and making him believe that he was grotesque. Yep. And that's a good, that's a good point. When he would look, he would he would believe that because if you tell people a lie, you know, enough times they become they they it becomes the truth to them. So yeah, I'm I'm you know I'm willing to bet that that lot that time frame is substantially shortened when it is your life giver. <laughs> yeah, and I have this excerpt from the book Egregores and something something something. I forgot the name of it. I got that on my shelf. And Carl Jung's approach of individualism, where one integrates one's consciousness contents in order to advance towards the self, right? One must mm-hmm. accept the loss of individuality by acknowledging that one is not the master of one's, one's own house. But this is usually met with a paranoid resistance. Through the reading of Lovecraft, the reader goes through their own anti-human becoming, a sort of epiphany, if you will, but in the worst possible way. And I added that at the end. And a window into otherness unveils the monsters as none other than oneself. And the horror to change this is the only monster we are meant to conquer. And this brings me to the symbolism of the dragon and the sword, the sword being the monad and the dragon symbolizing the dark self. And by you slaying this dragon and penetrating the dragon, right? I don't know, whichever way you want to do it, Anton. They, you are overcoming that dark self and the, and the, un, the, the subconscious. And the, the overarching theme in Lovecraft's work can be summed up in the following points. The search for knowledge is ultimately self-destructive for those who peek behind the curtain of reality. Mm-hmm. Number two, we cannot escape the past, even the past of our ancestors. We are not in control of our destiny. Larger forces prevail. The modern age is decadent and self-destructive, self-destructive and under threat from primitive and barbaric forces, both within and without. And the final point being ancient evil persists into the modern world in in inconceivable ways. And once realized leads to insanity and death. Again, very dominant aspects of Lovecraft's work that we're talking about here. And how you mentioned earlier, Lovecraft's entities do not seek our destruction, but rather appear as utterly indifferent to humanity. And it is by coincidence that they have a relationship with us by ignoring humans. They're actually contributing to a sense of alienation. The horror derives from the realization that common human laws, interests, and emotions have no validity or significance in the vast cosmos at large. The true horror is merely the mere knowledge that these entities exist and have come from the stars long before human civilization. These entities in Lovecraft's world were never e- were not evil. They were far beyond any conception of morality of hum- any human conception of morality. These entities exist in a dark reality where nothing is impossible and is beyond the grasp of humans. And I put hashtag no lives matter because your fucking life doesn't matter. And not to the eldritch beings, no. Yes. And they symbolize the essence of external externality as H.P. Lovecraft writes to achieve the essence of real 
externality, whether of time or space or dimension, one must forget that such things are organic, that such things as organic life, good and evil, love and hate, and all such local attributes of a negligible and temporary race called mankind have any existence at all. That's fucking dark, bro. Like, like nothing fucking matters. How you yeah. feel doesn't matter. What you're seeing doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Your your nothing. Your senses. Nothing matters. That's a very nihilistic right point of view of that. Nothing fucking matters. And I want to get into Lovecraft's various types of entities, and we have. Why do you thing. think, uh, just one point, why do you think so many of us are drawn to Lovecraft in early adolescence? Because we're going to that through that existential crisis, right, of trying to find ourselves and, and realizing what matters and trying to look within, right? And especially going through puberty, you know, that can yep. be a very confusing time in the life of anybody, right? Especially yeah. as an adolescent, you're going through all these emotions, hormones and all this shit, right? You don't know if you like girls, if you like boys, like what you like. So I think that people see themselves in this work. And me, that, that you know, what draws me to to Lovecraft was that he was a raging racist. And I really love that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not a racist. Let me spit I, drink all over my keyboard, you son of a bitch. I love everybody. I, I hate everybody. Really equally. Love his prolific use of the racial slurs. <laughs> Isolate that audio. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, what I love about it is, uh, you know, I'm very big into science fiction, uh, the, these different mythologies, monsters, dragons, dungeons and dragons, right? All you this didn't stuff. get my 42 bit earlier for shame. No, I didn't. What is that? Hitchhiker's Guide mm -hmm. to the Galaxy. The ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. Uh, 42. God, no. All right. Kind of makes sense. I don't know. <laughs> Add a zero so, to the end of that, and you got the ultimate answer. 420, baby. 420, bitch. Anyways, sorry. <laughs> so, Lovecraft, I want to get into the, the, the entities that he talks about. The elder things, the great old ones, the deep ones, and the outer gods. Again, because he has this, this hierarchy of entities, if you will. And What's your favorite group? Out of all of them, which one do you like more? Do you like the, uh, you know, the, the elder beings and the outer gods, you like the outer gods. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the last, that's the last one I'm going to be talking about. Right. So the elder things were the first alien species to colonize earth a billion years ago. They created Yogg-Sagoths. Yog Yogg-Sagoths. <laughs> they created Shagoths. Protoplasmic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Shagoth. Protoplasmic shape-shifting beers, beers, beings able to reflect all forms and organs who served as slaves to build vast cities but were rebelled against their masters. The great city ruins remain frozen in, in Antarctica, and some of these entities can be found as fossils or in frozen hibernation. And then I put Transformers because, again, we have Megatron, again, frozen in time, and it was through the, through the work of a human that they broke through in some frozen landscapes on frozen tundra and they awoke him from his slumber again very lovecraftian right and it's pretty much exactly what happens in um mountains of madness yes. you know the arctic expedition goes down and then they're they're uh chased by the incessant piping of tekalili tekalili <laughs> and my favorite part in this was and the mountain the mountains the mountains of madness was the it was a terrible indestructible thing vaster than any subway train a shapeless Congeries of protoplasmic bubbles, faintly, faintly self-luminous and with myriads of temporary eyes forming and unforming as pustules of greenish light all over the tunnel filling front that bore down upon us. And then this is my favorite part in this whole fucking convoluted mess of words. Crushing the frantic penguins and slithering over the glistening floor. So imagine, I can just imagine the fucking penguins just like, oh shit, no, oh, and they just get run over by this fucking blob that's just... 
Have you ever yeah. seen the the concept art that Guillermo del Because Guillermo del Toro has been working on trying to get at the Mountains of Madness made into a movie. Um, so he he made penguins for it because the penguins are described as these hideous, sightless, yeah. <laughs> deformed birds and shit. Also, we would be remiss if we didn't touch on the fact that Lovecraft identifies with the slave owner race of elder beings, essentially. Whereas, like, at the end of the day, they were scientists just like us. <laughs> because they only sought knowledge and, and, you know, advancement of their race. And it's like, that, okay... That's Said a Nietzsche Lovecraft. concept, though, right? The the slave and owner concept, right? So that's a Nietzschean concept. That's a Crowleyan concept, and that. But but the way that I I know the the uh, the way that it's always spun to make it a favorable thing for Nietzsche and Crowley is uh you know like when he refers to slaves, he refers to those who are incapable of thinking for themselves. He's not saying if you think for yourself, you are you know you're still going to be a slave. It's just kind of like for those that are the herd. That is where they'll be most satisfied. Like, uh, essentially, almost like medieval peasants. Yes, yes, yes. And so, again, the the mountains of madness reminds me of Admiral Bird again, Hollow Earth, where these they were supposedly said to of battled these aliens. And also, I, I meant to touch the on Nazi UFOs. We know that with Goetia, right, and Solomonic magic, these entities are able to give people otherworldly powers. Now, one thing I forgot to mention earlier was that Lovecraft had some sort of remote viewing ability where he was able to describe certain settings to the T that he had never mm -hmm. visited, right? So, again, this aspect of this djinn presenting himself and taking over Lovecraft is, again, another... There's some validity to it because it, it, it makes sense. It makes sense to me. But again, you have the fandom that comes out and goes, no, I don't, I don't fucking think so. So we have here the great old ones. That is not dead, which can. Eternal lie not, and which with strange yeah. eons even. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? That is not dead, which can eternal lie. And with the strange eons, even death may die. Mm -hmm. And so we have here the great old ones were the great. The old ones are the old ones shall be not in the spaces we know, but between them again. This is inter that's what I love to this interdimensional aspect of it all. They walk serene and primal undimensioned and to us unseen. And that's from the Dunwich horror. Mm -hmm. And the great old ones are a group of unique immortal beings that were rulers and gods over earth, but now reside asleep yet eternal in various parts around this flat earth. And they can be compared to demigods, right? Cthulhu is the high priest and the great dreamer who lies in a deep slumber beneath the ocean. Again, we have Pacific Rim, the, this thing where these, there's this portal and these kaiju, right? Kaijus mm -hmm. come through and they're these fucking crazy big, right? Even Godzilla is also Lovecraftian, right? Because he's at in the a way, of the ocean. In a way, I would say yes, very much so. He is, you know, this. But he protects us, right? No, depends on which Godzilla it is. Oh, the, depending on which canon? <laughs> well, no, no, it's not even which canon, it's, it's which Godzilla it is, because there are actually multiple. The first Godzilla, the one from Gojira, is dead. Oh, shit. Dies in the end of the first movie, because they make the oxygen destroyer. And the whole oh. thing, obviously, it's become a trope at this point, but Godzilla is, uh, was developed at a time where Japan was, it was illegal for them to critique anything America did. It was post-war Japan, so they can't really come out and be like, hey, there's this great dread that we're all feeling because you just nuked the fuck out of us. You literally mm -hmm. destroyed hundreds of thousands of people in, in, a, in a fraction of a second. So we can't really critique that legally. So they made, you know, 
Godzilla. And then you had the man, the scientist, who is basically almost an Oppenheimer, who creates the oxygen destroyer, who's like, if I set this thing off, it's going to save us from Godzilla. It's going to fuck some shit up. But it's also going to be something, it, It's the box is open. You can't, Pandora ain't going back in. You know, mm -hmm. that's something that's been used in the same way that, you know, once the atomic bomb was detonated for the first time, Oppenheimer was just like, oh, oh, fuck, what have I done? Yeah, I'm not going to requote the Bahadva Gita, as I'm sure all of your listeners are well aware of what Oppenheimer allegedly say said. Say oh, the uh, I am become death destroyer of worlds. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That's my favorite line. I love that interview. It's so, so good. Again, right. Fun it, it, side fact. Uh, Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park has a fucking picture of Oppenheimer on his computer. Really? Yeah, there's a little like for the longest time. I thought it was Hugh Hefner because do with a pipe. <laughs> and I looked at it. I was like, that's fucking Oppenheimer. Son of a bitch. Again, this idea that in order to save yourself, you must, you know, at what cost, right? If you, in order to learn these secrets, it comes at what costs. And it's not even to save yourself so much as it's the to, to, to benefit mankind in, in putting an end to something like the whole greater good concept. Like, do you unleash an ultimate evil for a greater good? Yes. And Cthulhu, right, is is this this iconic monster. This right cephalopod half man uh, wing, if you would, if you can call it that, right, wings of a dragon, and you know octopus are one of the most fucking alien things that have that are in our oceans, bro. If you see octopus, you're like, what in the fuck? Extraordinarily intelligent, they can fit through almost fucking yes. any crevice. It's like interdimensional. They're like interdimensional in their own sense. Like they fucking fit through these little holes and they just mm -hmm. go through it. Like that's crazy to me. And the way that they camouflage. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, wow. you're just not even going to see the motherfucker, and then some of them are venomous and stuff. Yeah, no, they're they're fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And again, Lovecraft writing what he knows, being so close to the ocean, and I'm sure having gone to an aquarium or two or, or seen, you know, remember this is the early 1900s, so a lot of species are just being discovered. Like oh, yeah. gorillas were just like gorillas and bananas were like brand fucking new to so many people in the West that are just like, <laughs> what is this? Monkeys eat bananas. Yeah, yeah they're like, they're like those are those are apes, but they look vaguely human and i'm sure that fucked up with a lot of people's heads and that's why so many people were just like no 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 we're not nope nope darwin fuck you i don't think so <laughs> so right th this this being this 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 chimera if you will and the thing cannot be described there is no language for such abysm right i hope i said that abyssum abysms of shrieking and immemorial lunacy such eldritch contra uh, contradictions of all matter force and cosmic order a mountain walked or stumbled I, I don't know why the fuck i put that shit there so cthulhu echoes the word chthonic one who inhib inhabits the underworld his residence is in the under underwater city of Ruyach, deep yep. within the abyss and the unknown within the conscious uh, the unconscious he is sleeping sleeping yet eternal waking yet dreaming dead yet alive and then we have that is not dead which can eternal lie and with strange eons even death may die and so car hearkening it back to the occult aspect of it uh, i have a deck of tarot cards that's the necronomicon deck and in that deck cthulhu is the devil hmm. primarily because of the subterranean level of it the fact that he is considered a destroyer you know not an enlightener which is weird because you would think that almost uh Nyarlathotep would be the devil but he has like the also the, he, like the high priest or the emperor or something. He tricks the the outer gods, doesn't he? He does yeah, he's, Cthulhu. Cthulhu and the deep ones are basically at war with the outer gods. Mm. Interesting. Um, so Dagon, uh, I believe Dagon and Cthulhu are essentially same side. 
Hydra uh, is, is also same side, but now we're getting into extended mythos type stuff. We're getting into the stuff that Lovecraft himself didn't write, but his oh. contemporaries like Block and Derelith and everybody like that wrote. Interesting. Yeah, you have like, I don't want to say like, like the Jedi's and the Sith, because they're all kind of like the Sith, but like there's these factions in between, right? These clans that are against each other within their own, right? Denominations of evil, right? If you, But again, they're not evil. They just don't give a fuck about us, but we can't comprehend that because it's outside our of our realm of 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 knowing right so we have here uh this line expresses cthulhu's immense existence beyond human thought it is in its eternal form even the concept of death is no more he had here we go he had cast a spell on the great old ones and while they no longer live they have never really died while mm -hmm. asleep they communicate with humans through the dreamlands of the collective unconscious for Cthulhu is a source of constant anxiety for mankind at an unconscious level. Around the world, the Cthulhu cult praised the great old ones chanting in his house in Relyach. Dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. And when the stars are aligned, the underwater city will rise. And again, very Atlantean, right, in, in, in aspect. And with the help of the eternal Cthulhu cult, the great old ones will awaken and regain what was once theirs. The cult praised to their own demise, unbeknownst to them, as the entities are beyond good and evil. Any hint of malevolence is strictly the interpretation of the human who seeks an explanation for the unexplained. In the call of Cthulhu, the protagonist, who was previously consumed with curiosity and traveled to unravel his mysterious findings, is terrified upon discovering the truth of the existence of the great old ones. And he says, I shall never sleep calmly again when I think of the horrors that lurk ceaselessly behind life in time and in space now go ahead go, going into extended mythos type stuff um like the uh the call of cthulhu d20 games uh call of cthulhu dark corners of the earth arkham horror things along those lines that's the reason why your character uses morphine so fucking much is because their sights and the things that they've seen will not allow their mind to rest like true madness where your mind you're just in there and you cannot shut it off so yes 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 and right because they use like this this substance right to be able to cope with with reality because yeah no they just yeah. straight up like just shoot up morphine in order to go to sleep like the same yeah. way that like <laughs> returning war vets would you know that were so shell-shocked at the time or had battle fatigue or combat fatigue as it was known you know became hooked on morphine just in order to get the visions and the nightmares to stop holy shit so we have the deep ones and this is very quick Lovecraft introduces them in the shadow over Innsmouth, this ocean dwelling amphibious, right? Half human, half grotesque race that has strong ties with Cthulhu and are known for mating with humans. And, and I related this to the Elohim, the Watchers, the Nephilim, right? Again, because the, the, they would come down and fuck the humans. It's very Faustian in, it, in its way um, in that Obed Marsh basically makes a deal out on Devil's Reef with you know the, the the deep ones that this this fishing town this fishing village that is now going under they begin bringing them you know just treasures and and gems and everything that that causes this great wealth offerings yeah yes which is where they uh then the humans create the esoteric order of dagon which then becomes kind of like this this uh not, not a genealogical but like a hereditary type thing where it's like almost like a, a masonic lodge but an even more exclusive Masonic Lodge that actually has ties to, you know, 
powerful, powerful deities. And and, and the, the deep the deep ones don't really die. They reach a certain age where they they begin to peace out. Yeah, yeah that uh, as it's known the uh, that in's mouth look because they all look like fish people actually. Uh, that's what that tattoo is. This is an in's mouth. You're wearing a little fedora and smoking a cigarette. That's awesome. And, um, and, and, and the protagonist, right, realizes that his lineage is traced back to all this shit. And then obviously he starts becoming, you know, spoiler yep. alert, so. going back to that, going back to that theme of you can't, well, it, the book's fucking like a hundred years old at this point. The almost. Devil's Reef. Yeah. Uh, the Devil's uh, Reef. He starts y- going. You can't escape your your genealogy. You can't escape the sins of your father, uh, which I, I think was Lovecraft's way of dealing with the whole, like, am I going to end up in the fucking loony bin like my parents? Yeah. Or, you know, which he didn't. He avoided it. He didn't suffer a fate much better. He died penniless of intestinal cancer in the fucking, you know, in, in a hospital. Nonetheless, he's, well, he still died in the hospital like his parents. Yeah. But and it wasn't a loony bin, at least. The Deep Ones, they worship Dagon, right? The most powerful of the Deep Ones. And Dagon believe, and Hydra, yeah. Yeah, Dagon, yeah, Hydra. I believe that Dagon is also a Phoenician entity, right? That was worshipped by some people. So it's actual, it has an actual interpretation into the, the real world, right? So Lovecraft was also uh, one of Lovecraft's favorite books, despite being a staunch atheist, was the Bible. Because he loved the way it was written, because he was a hardcore <laughs> Anglophile, and he loved the Old English. Um, it, it was one of his favorite books, even though he didn't believe it as a religious text. He just viewed it as a, a work of historical literature. So we have here the outer gods in my favorite. And I have a, a quote by Stephen King from Cell. At bottom, you see, we are not homo sapiens at all. Our core is madness. The prime directive is murder. What Darwin was too polite to say, my friends, is that we came to rule the earth, not because we were the smartest or even the meanest, but because we have always been the craziest, most murderous motherfuckers in the jungle. And that's by Stephen King. And we have the most powerful of all entities, the outer gods, these cosmic entities located beyond the confines of earth. And the most notable of those, because again, there's like, is there hundreds of, well, the extended mythos. The extended mythos we're getting into. Yeah. But I mean, that, that, that's a series in and of itself. But the original there is, there's what? There's Azathoth. There's Nyarlathotep, which is the offshoot of Azathoth. There is, uh, I believe, isn't Shubnigorath a... Yeah. Yep, Shubnigorath is an outer god. Um, Yogzathoth is an outer god. Yep. Yeah, uh, Haster so... is technically an outer god, even though he's not really Cthulhu's. Haster, I believe, is is Robert Block from King in Yellow. Mm. Um. I have here the most notable ones being the most notable ones being Yog Sagoth, Shubnigaroth, Naralithotep, and Azathoth. Azathoth. Yep. And most of them dwell in the outer voids outside of thought and existence beyond the ultimate gate, which leads fearsomely and perilously to the last void, which is outside all earth, all universe, and all matter. The ultimate gate can only be unlocked with a silver key, an ancient artifact that unlocks the gate of space and time and allows access to remote places of the universe. It also allows one access to all the possible lives one may live or have lived. And this gate is guarded by Yogg-Sagoth, for whom time and space shares no boundaries. And then we have here, Yogg-Sagoth knows the gate. Yogg-Sagoth is the gate. Yogg-Sagoth is the key and guardian of the gate, past, present, future, all are one in Yog Sagoth, and he holds the knowledge of everything and is the gatekeeper of it. And those who worship him seek the key to forbidden knowledge. However, it's, it always leads to madness, and it 
opens a door to places we were never meant to travel. And the only people who would really even be able to summon Yogg-Sothoth would be his children, uh, Wilbur Waitley and Wilbur Waitley's twin, which is how Wilbur Waitley dies, uh, breaking into Arkham to steal the Necronomicon so he can finish the ritual. Oh, well, like some like some Babylon holding some more Babylon working ritual type of shit. Essentially, but I mean, Wilbur Waitley was was distinctly non-human. Uh, and that's that's all in Dunwich Horror. Uh, that's, that's the whole premise of it is that he, you know, was the goat man. So, which would would be weird because I, I want to say, yeah, he he is he's the father of Wilbur Waitley. But for for Wilbur Waitley's appearance, I I feel like it's more akin to Shubnigurath, which is the you know the 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 goat with a thousand young. Like I, that's that's the one thing that I always I always wondered about with Lovecraft's writing, where it's like I, I feel like he might have almost mixed it up there. But you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's his work, not mine. So. And Lovecraft uh, described Shubnigaroth as Yogg-Sagoth's wife and a hellish, cloud-like entity. She can only be referred to as something unknowable, the not-to-be-named one. And while most of the outer gods are exiled to the stars, Nihilithotep, however, is active and frequently walks the earth in the guise of a human being. He is a go-between for humans and the gods, linking us to the entities beyond comprehension. As the crawling chaos and cosmic shapeshifter, he has infinite shapes in innumerable, innumerable forms. He is deliberately deceptive and manipulative, representing the archetype of the trickster. And I put mm -hmm. Inky or Enlil, whichever one you want to say. He reminds us of the existence of that which we cannot truly know. We have Azathos is the all-powerful creator of existence. He is known as the blind idiot god who is absolutely mindless and unconscious, but is omnipotent and is the most powerful being in the entire mythos. And he has created all of reality in a dream. He doesn't even know he created nope. himself. He is, he is a dreaming monster in whose dream the universe resides. Countless lesser deities play Manning tunes on innumerable, drum, innumerable drums and flutes to keep Athasaz from awakening. For if he should be awakened, awakened, all of existence would be no more. And all would once again be Athasaz. He is the embodiment of disorder and cannot be destroyed as the concept of destruction is merely his dream. And he exists beyond all human concepts. So, yeah, it's bro, I love that shit. I fucking yeah, love it's that. great. It's fucking awesome, dude. And to think I'm so just that somebody is able to think up of of these things and just, again, bring forth this this entire mythos and universe, I think, is very, very impressive. Right. And uh, he created a pantheon. Lovecraft, like yes. quite literally created a pantheon that some people regard as actual deities because uh, probably partially because of, of how much it pulls from inspiration from a from, you know, ancient deities and, and things that especially us in Western civilization don't really talk about. Plus, you know, the whole lack of a pronounced ancient culture amongst Westerners, I, I think, I think draws you to that. Um, and another thing Lovecraft talks about a lot is he believed in an interconnectivity between all ideologies of witchcraft. He believed that there was just one well from which all magic sprung, at least in yeah, literary yeah. sense, not, not going into the whole actual metaphysical aspect of it. Um, but that was I very pronounced in his stuff as well as, yeah, as all of these cults, came from one place and it's all just basically a game of telephone as they splintered and were scattered to the winds of, of what gets brought up where that's why he said uh you know people in south america were worshiping the same gods as people in africa that were worshiping the same gods as, as the old celts and things along those lines and that's or at least varying degrees on those gods and that's history that's real shit
You know? It makes sense if Pangea and the land bridge existed. Yeah, it makes sense that these ideas are going to span places that are now separate from one another, even though they were at one point in time connected. So as we come to a, a conclusion here very quickly, I have a couple more things to talk about. And I and it's interesting that you mentioned the Twilight Zone earlier, and I have the Twilight Zone opening narration season one. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timely as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an, it is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. And he, yeah, he had yeah, I should have added that. He had this thing, right? This Euclidean non-Euclidean geometry geometry and all this yeah. shit to express the unknown. He used mathematical concepts and bizarre landscapes that should not be able to exist. And he says in one of his stories, the geometry of the dream place he saw was abnormal, non-Euclidean, and loathsome redulled redolent of spheres and dimensions apart from us. And Again, using abnormal geometries to capitalize on the fear of the unknown is found in many of his stories. And he's uh, another one. He was swallowed up by an angle of masonry which shouldn't have been there. An angle which was acute but behaved as if it was were obtuse. And was that the one from Call of Cthulhu or is that the one from Dreams in the Witch House where he finds the the uh, the door in between the dimensions that the, the, the witch and that the, the rat with the human face went through was he, the, the room that he lived in with that angle that just shouldn't be. It's the weirdest angle in a room ever. And he found that that was where the portal was. Yeah. I, I didn't write down from where it was, but I can imagine like, Oh, oh it's a vagina. It's a, oh, it's like fucking morphing. <laughs> <laughs> so he tries to present us with this idea of what this fourth dimension or other dimension would be right. He describes abominations such as Cthulhu who fit well with what we would imagine something of this nature to be right. This is, yep. this is otherworldly. This is cosmic. This is a horror. Right. And, and that's, we see that in all his writings. And it, uh, so there's this reference that people will hear at the intro of this. It is like an ant who lives in a two dimensional world and sees a human being. It cannot comprehend it. Our hand to them would be something of another dimension appearing and disappearing from reality. Mm -hmm. And this is how these Lovecraftian entities would perceive, uh, how we would perceive these Lovecraftian entities, right? They're in and out of this existence, in and out of this reality. But, uh, you know, this dimension where, you know, we may see them as like a string in the sky or some fucking shit. You know, we don't know. So or even just a he, ripple in time where it's just, you know, a little shimmer in the sky. And you're like, I don't Those are glitches in the Matrix, perhaps, yeah. I think, you know, so. We have uh, Lovecraft's cosmic entities and objects exist in dimensions beyond the one we have come to recognize if we recognize it at all, right? Because we don't even know what the fuck time and space is, really. We know this is what we're trying to figure out. Right. And so uh, Lovecraft's worlds, they, they escaped any visualization. Uh, we can only slightly comprehend the descriptions because of our limited knowledge. If we were to be tormented by these creatures, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know they were just here. They can kill us at any point in time. We don't matter. And they control our emotions. And I have here forbidden knowledge. Uh, this is, a, again, another aspect in Lovecraftian writing. Many of Lovecraft's characters seek forbidden knowledge only to be driven mad when this knowledge is revealed to them. The pursuit for this knowledge also leads these characters to their deaths. And obviously we have 
the most forbidden book, right, which we'll be covering very soon. Uh, the book being the infamous Necronomicon written by the mad Arab Abdul Ahazred. And again, he knows that it's, it, these people, they still seek this knowledge, right? Even us, right? When we're looking into certain things, we know that. No, of course, yeah. This may fucking drive us to insanity, but we mm -hmm. still want to look for it. And I want to conclude with, go ahead. Do you think that was a commentary by Lovecraft on his views of modern society? Because obviously he was somebody who mentally lived in the past. He he worshipped the past, for lack of a better term. You know, he, he wished he lived there. He wished he could go back to the glory days of the Anglo-Saxon Empire and the Nordic people in his own mind. Um, and I think that it's possible, but I'm kind of curious to know what your thoughts are on that. So what you're trying to say is like he, and I, and, and I don't know if I should the say this. Let me paraphrase. The, the quest for knowledge leading to madness and destruction. Do you think that that was his criticism on modern society? Like similar to like how Ted Kaczynski was just like, this is going to be bad. It's going to be real fucking bad. And you guys don't even know how bad it's going to be. We can, well, yes, Nikola Tesla talked about this, right? He, he predicted mm -hmm. certain things, the fall of humanity, right? Where, where this technology would come in. That's what the whole thing about AI is. And I think we can draw some parallels to this where maybe, right? Uh, Lovecraft was writing in order to, he was telling like his own story, right? We can see this. We can see the parallels in his stories. And <laughs> there I say that he, I can compare him to the great, saint nicholas cage where he is living all these lives oh, within yeah. these movies and try and try, yeah and trying to bring forth these different realities right like the alchemist trying to pursue the com the components and the ingredients of the philosopher's stone but at the end of the day the philosopher's stone is us right and we sure. are the alchemists in the cave looking for this knowledge this gnosis that will mm -hmm. help us eventually become enlightened to where we can recognize all things in the world so yeah, I, I do think we can draw some correlations there as far as him pre trying to predict, because if you look at society nowadays, it's like we have all the information at this given point in time that we've had since the beginning of time, but yet we're that much dumber. We're more dumbed down. The more information we have available to us, we're focused on the, these other irrelevant sh things about society, right? Materialism and all these things that, that just draw away from our creative forces, if you will, right? Because we're not... Mm -hmm. People don't read anymore. People don't give a shit about any of that stuff. People don't want to study history. People don't even know who the fucking president of the United States is. And you can look around, you know, people don't know. Some people say the Holocaust was fake. So, yes, I can totally see that where maybe the having this abundance of information available to us even drives us to some sort of insanity at that point. Because I, I, I see that within myself as well. The more I look into things, the madder I feel, the more insane I feel like, wow, this is too much to take in. So... Yeah, I think we can draw some some correlations with well, like, that. Well, you're, like, you're a parent. Mm -hmm. Use this example. How many choices do you give a three-year-old? None. <laughs> Not exactly. Many. So so if we are still in an infancy stage as far as, you know, like like, like chronologically speaking as humans, and, and we are just given this abundance of just sensory overload and input, yeah, it's going to fuck a lot of us up. And the, uh, to go back to your history thing, the sheer amount of people who have not even, you know, a, a limited knowledge of history, but just a complete lack of interest in anything about history or just being like, what do I need to know that for? It's in the past. 
just past. I don't care. It doesn't like, matter. Uh, do you not understand how relevant the past is to your daily life? And that pattern recognition is the thing that could make or break or save your life or destroy your life for that matter. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just, it, we should never be afraid for the quest for knowledge, but I, I think we should definitely be cautious about what exactly we seek. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is, is almost a mirrored reflection of our intention. Yeah. If you seek truth with, uh, you know, a heart meant for goodness, you're probably not going to discover anything that's really going to end horribly for people you care about. Yeah. Now, if you seek truth with a heart bent on, you know, the quest for power, something it's, else is going to happen. It's the spear of destiny, right? Depending on which hands it is, it either causes harm or heals those exact wounds that it made. Exactly. And the 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 spear symbolizing knowledge and how you use it, right? Depending on the wielder of that spear, and yeah, I, I agree with you one hundred percent. People don't give a shit anymore, and I think that's uh, one of the the main problems with society, right? We've been uh, conditioned to just fuck everybody else. It's only me, 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 right? Hashtag whatever lives matter. It's like no, they all matter. And I'm not again. I'm not saying anything i'm not racist or anything like that. i'm just stating how i feel and how i see things fit so you take that as you will right to whoever the fuck is listening so we have here and i want to summarize with this the the uh, conclude with this the dreamlands right and uh lovecraft had a lifelong interest in dreams and many of his stories were inspired by dreams and we know that the unconscious symbolizes the archetype of the unknown and because again we don't Right. How Carl Jung said, when you bring the uh, the subconscious to light, right, the dark mm-hmm. self to light, it will show you the, the, the you know, you'll call everything fate and just live life as, as you will. Right? Yep. Paraphrasing. And he had these dreamlands and, and there were windows into forbidden knowledge and forces beyond humanity's understanding a vast, unorthodox and incomprehensible dimension that can be entered through dreams, which I related to the astral plane, right? This thing where people are able to go through and, and their the secrets are revealed to them, et cetera, et cetera. And he wrote The Dream Cycle as a series of short stories and novellas by Lovecraft, one of his most notable ones being The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Yeah, illustrating it's one of my scope, favorites. Yeah, illustrating the scope and wonder of humankind's ability to dream. Everyone has their own dreamland, but share a common general land of vision. Lovecraft's stories are bizarre. They are so bizarre that the average reader, reader is relieved of all their preconceptions about reality and even their sense of self. In the stories, the characters who fear their loss individually and attempt to preserve it are the ones who fall into madness. The more you mm-hmm. fight, the worse it gets for you, Anton. And Dude, the biggest thing with Dream Un, uh, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, too, is that, you know, the, the character, and, and spoilers on the story, but the character of Randolph Carter basically starts out with being like, I need to find this forbidden city, this unknown Kadath. It's it's the greatest adventure ever. And then at the end of the story, he's like, I just want to go home. He, he just he dreams of Boston and the spires and, and, you know, the memories of his childhood and the way that things look. And I, I think that you know, it is a, a profound example of Lovecraft just kind of expressing himself in, in a very pure way of just being like, look, I've been chasing this my whole life. And it's, I just, I just want to be, I just want to be happy in my grandfather's library again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's again, uh, home is where the heart is right at the end of the day. It's like, man, sometimes you got to just say, fuck this shit. I just want to go home. Right. Sometimes yeah. we all, we all feel that. So we can see a little bit of ourselves in all these stories. Um, so that was somewhat. I think that went well. I think that was. I, I think so too. That yeah. was a that was a crash course, right, into Lovecraftian mythos and Lovecraft's 
work and life a little bit. And I think that the next time that we see each other, we will be talking about the infamous Necronomicon because I think that's another fascinating aspect to all of this. And I hopefully the, the listeners enjoyed this and hopefully we brought some nuggets of, of new ideas and, and quote unquote facts that maybe you didn't know about, but absolutely. Thank you, thank you Anton for joining me with, for this episode. I don't think it would have been appropriate to do it with anybody else, except for that dude that I hit up and never hit me back <laughs> up. But <laughs> Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Juan, and, and thanks very much for having me on for this one. This is, you know, as you are well aware, one of my favorite subjects. Yes. Uh, yes. For any listeners that that want to talk shit about anything that I, I said or got anything wrong, just yell at me at HP Shovecraft. Just send me a DM. I'll, I'll talk to you. I'll listen. Yeah, if you want to plug your stuff again so that we can mm. sign off. So uh, HP Shovecraft on Instagram, Invader Daggett underscore TTV on Twitch. Um, I, I played Dagon on there as well. I've played some of the, uh, the sunken city on there. So, you know, any, any horror gamers that feel like playing, even if you're just a dead by daylight player or something and, you know, want to play some survivor rounds, hit me up. And remember everybody, none of oh, your lives of course, matter. Of course, the strange brew podcast. I would be remiss if I didn't shout out strange brew. That's right. Strange brew podcast. Follow the socials at the one-on-one podcast on all social media platforms, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, Twatter. Make sure to follow the Patreon <laughs> slash the one on one podcast. And it's fucking fire on there. You will get access to episodes a week ahead of time and exclusive Patreon content. And I'm going to take it away with the music of Eric Zahn. <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> Later, everyone. Ladder.